speaker, his name is Chris Scoes. Many of us um, who attended Contend in over the summer got a chance to hear him speak. He has a really powerful testimony. Um, he's going to be joining us this December 2nd. I want to encourage you to try and sign up for retreat this week if you can. Next week's going to be um, the last week to sign up. We are going to have service not in this room, but in the Life Point room, which is in the main building, second floor, okay? We're having a special Christmas candlelight um, Sunday service, okay? So it's going to be a little bit different, um, but it'll be awesome. We'll have a good time, okay? And we'll have the normal service time, although you can come at 930 or 1130. That's all right. Okay, we have a couple other announcements real quick before we get into the word today. Um, let's see here. Okay, so we know that morning prayer is happening. I want to encourage everyone to come. We, we do this every single year. We do 21 days of morning prayer as a church. This year, we're doing it a little bit differently. Um, the English ministries will be doing it together separately in the Life Point room. So it won't be in Korean. Amen. Won't be in Korean. We can understand what's going on. Um, but what we want, God has really laid this heavily on my heart. We must capture the prayer anointing of our forefathers. We must capture the prayer anointing of our forefathers. I'm asking you not just to come out to morning prayer, but to contend with us for the grace to prioritize prayer in a serious way. Look, I'm, I'm only half Korean, so if you're not Korean... Don't worry, okay? We're in this together. But if you are Korean, I just want to say this. You have a spiritual inheritance, right, that was given us through revival in Pyongyang in 1907. It was part of the revivals that were happening all over the world right here in Pasadena. There was a revival going on that was connected with what was happening in Wales, with what was happening in India, and what was happening in Korea. It was an explosion of the Holy Spirit. 600 million people have been saved from this movement, the fastest growing religious movement in the history of the world, and this is our inheritance. What came out of the 1907 revival was an explosion specifically of prayer. And that movement of prayer has been the backbone, the foundation of the Korean church. Korea has sent out more missionaries per capita than any other people group. We've sent out more missionaries than any nation except for America, because America had way more Christians. So there's a lot to be proud of as a Korean Christian, but also I just have this burden. We have to recapture that priority of prayer. If we do not in this generation, then the Korean church will die. Okay, in Korea today, only something like 15 years ago, the nation was 25% Christian. And I believe right now it's about 15% Christian. There's been a major backsliding in Korea of Christianity because this generation has not had the same priority of prayer. Instead, they have criticized all the negative things of the first generation churches. And as an English ministry pastor, I've heard all the criticisms, okay? I know all of them. I can tell you a lot of them, okay? There are a lot of truth to them, but I, I'm, I'm really emphasizing this because this is what I feel like God has put in my spirit. The strength of the, of the, Korean, of the first generation church is their prayer. And that strength is so important and so strong that it covers over all their weaknesses. And we've got to recapture that. So I'm calling all of us to come and to pray together. And we're going to do that for 21 days. And I'm asking that God would give us an anointing so that we can carry it farther in this coming season. And I believe this is from the Lord. I believe it's something he's put on my heart. He's put on the hearts of many other leaders. We're going to be announcing some of the stuff that we have in the works but I believe God is calling this entire region. I believe that there's leaders all over this region getting the same heart. And I think we're going to be working together in the coming months. We'll see what the Lord does. Okay, second thing. I see a lot of faces. I know people are done with school. And maybe some of you are back in Southern California. Welcome back if you are back with us this break. I want to make myself available. How many of you are there that are back from uh, elsewhere? What's up, Harrison? Good to see you, man. What's up, Brian? Okay. I want to make myself available this next week, okay? This next week, I'm going to make myself available to meet. If you would like to meet for any reason, just to reconnect, if you have questions, you want to talk about your faith, whatever it might be, this next week is a fantastic week for me. I'm making myself available between 10 a.m. 
and 2 p.m., okay, in hour-long slots. I want to encourage you, contact me. The best way to do that is through Facebook. Just send me a message. If we're not Facebook friends, go ahead and request, and I promise I will not deny you, okay? You can ask to hang out, and I would love to do that with you this week. It's an open invitation. All right, and lastly, we have an announcement. We are putting together what we are calling a reality trip. Reality trip. Amen. Meaning, one of these days, y'all going to have to graduate and enter reality. <laughs> Amen. So what we are planning to do this year for the first time is we're going to do a number of trips. And the purpose of these trips is to give you vision and understanding about what the next step in your career path is after you graduate. Okay, so we are planning to do about four different trips depending on different career fields. So, for example, I know many people in our group are interested in medicine, in being nurses, um, physician assistants, all these types of things. We, our medical trip is going to be um, a collection. We're going to visit probably a hospital, probably a private practice. We're going to interview a number of people that work in the medical field to give you a sense of what it's like to work in these various fields. You'll have an opportunity to ask each of them questions. And hopefully by the end of that trip, you'll have a good sense of what it's like to work in that field and really what the next steps should be for you after you graduate. Does this make sense? Okay, what we want to do right now really quick is to take an informal poll by the showing of your hands. What we want to know is what fields are you interested in? Okay, because we are going to plan four different trips to different, um, to different places, different workplaces, based on the sense that we have of people's interest in these various fields. So I just want you to do right now a show of hands just to show us if you're interested in potentially going on a trip that would focus in one of these areas. Okay, so number one, education. Anybody interested in teaching, working as a principal perhaps, or a school counselor? Just go ahead and raise your hands right now so we can get a sense. Yeah, I need to see them high. We're, we're counting, so give me high. Good, good, good. All right, number two, medical field. Who's interested in potentially going into medicine? This question. Okay, good. Lauren, I think we're gonna, we have to do medical. Yeah, we're going to do it. All right, number three, creative. This is like um, photography, if you're interested, graphic design. Perhaps it's music, a music career, something of that nature. If you're interested potentially in a creative field, raise your hands. All right, fourth, business, business. Okay, if you're interested in potentially starting your own business, working in accounting, marketing, sales, you just love spreadsheets. Man, you just, you just wanna be working with that spreadsheet all day long. <laughs> Amen. All right. Fifth, engineering. How many people are interested potentially in engineering? All right. These are the, these are the true Asians right here. All right. Okay, the best one. Ready? Ministry. Who's potentially interested in ministry? Go ahead and raise your hand so we can get a sense. Okay, lastly, hospitality. Hospitality, if you're interested in hotel management, things like that. Restauranting. Okay. All right, lastly, before we wrap up this segment, I want to take a couple of seconds for um, suggestions. Are there any fields that get, got neglected that there's strong interest in? Yeah. Government. Government. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Let me, real quick, anybody interested in potentially um, working for the government? Politics or law? Politics or law? It could be both, honestly. Politics or law? How about law enforcement? Anybody interested in law enforcement? Better start doing some push-ups, bro. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Yes. Psychology, counseling, therapy, anything like that? 
School counseling. Okay, a couple people, handful of people. Okay, anything else that we might have neglected? All right, we will let you know what we're going to, we're tentatively planning for the month of June. We're probably going to be sending out about four different trips. Oh, you know what, Lauren, we didn't have up there. We didn't have tech programming. That's it, just a couple? Oh, I thought we had more people interested in programming. Okay. Okay. All right, good. We are planning, um, we're, we're planning to schedule these trips for the month of June. We're thinking about making this an annual event. This will be an annual thing. So this is going to be kind of our first rough draft at this. It'll probably look like day trips. We'll take a day. We'll go um, visit a number of businesses, uh, have interviews with a number of people who are experienced in their line of work, and hopefully we'll make it, it will be a very informative and educational trip. You have a good sense of what to do after you graduate. Sound good? All right. All right, open up your Bibles, Daniel chapter 7. We are finishing up Daniel 7 today. While you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and do a quick review um, from last week. We're going to split up uh, Daniel 7 in, in, in basically two parts. Um, last week we talked about the vision of the four beasts, and I gave you my interpretation, which I believe is a future interpretation. We talked about the academic interpretation, which I think is garbage. And I think, and then we talked about the premillennial interpretation, which is fairly um, standard. That's the one you'll hear at most churches. Um, but I gave you my take, which I think is a future fulfillment. Ultimately, I don't think it's that big of a deal which view you hold on this, as long as you understand the main heart of this, which is a paradigm of Antichrist, right? We talked last week, Antichrist is something that, you know, a lot of people just get scared of. They're afraid of the mark of the beast, all this kind of weird stuff. They saw those scary movies, and you guys watch those movies. A Thief in the Night. Did you watch that one, bro? That's from the 70s. Oh, yeah. It's, it's intended to scare the heck out of you, right? It's all these Christians being killed and all this kind of stuff, right? Anyways, okay, there's a lot of scary stuff around eschatology and a study of end times, and I get that, but I don't want you guys to just think of it like that. I want you to have an understanding of the biblical paradigm of Antichrist, okay? Antichrist sounds weird because it's not terminology that we normally use these days. It really should be understood as counterfeit. It's a counterfeit Christ, and the idea here is that God's plans are moving throughout history. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. And the, the way that the enemy has chosen to counter this is by setting up counterfeit kingdoms. These are things that look like the plans of God, but they're different. And that's important because the plans of God are written into our hearts. We talked about this last week, how all the major religions of the world have some version of a perfect earth, right? We talk about how Islam has a vision of a perfect earth united under the laws of Allah. And we talked about how secular humanism has a vision of a perfected earth under a perfect human government. The reason why these visions are compelling to us is because we've been designed to desire this. When God created man, he said, be fruitful and multiply, right? Subdue the earth and rule over it. This is a mandate that's been hardwired into our DNA as people. We want to see a perfect earth. That's why when people say, what's the wish you want? You know, what's the cheesy thing that everybody says? I wish for world peace. Well, there's a reason. We all kind of understand that dream, that desire. We all desire that. We want a perfect world without war, without suffering, without disease. And I think the Bible properly understood is God telling us that that's been the plan all along. That's what the whole thing is about, that God has implemented this plan to fix and restore that which has been broken. But there are these competing plans, these alternate plans that also look good, that appeal to something in our hearts that compel us. And we mentioned that last week about how especially in our culture, we're dealing primarily with the secular humanistic dream. Okay, this is a secular humanism that really is, I try and make this clear, this is a religion. Okay, secular humanism is a religion. It is the dominant religion in the West today. And that's why many young people especially are drawn heavily to this vision that we can make a perfect world. How are we going to do that? Well, through educating people, through ending oppression, 
through setting up a perfect government that will provide, make sure there's no oppressors, no inequality, it will, it will create equality everywhere. All of this is a dream of secular humanism. The problem with that dream is that Scripture says it's impossible because we have a sinful nature. And this is what the founding fathers of America understood. They understood that they had to make government as weak as possible. And they did that through having a thing called the Constitution limit the powers of the government. And they made them rotate every four years, right? They have to rotate in and out. Why? Because they understood that when too much power is given to a person, it, it corrupts the person and it makes the government, the government becomes oppressive, which is one of the themes of Daniel. When Daniel is seeing all these visions of beasts, beasts are kingdoms ruled by men, and they inevitably become oppressive. That's one of the main themes of the book of Daniel. Okay, so when we're looking in this vision of the four beasts, these stand for four kingdoms, and the final one has this little horn that's this figure of the Antichrist that is promised to us as an end times figure that is going to bring great oppression upon the earth, but especially upon the church. Okay, we're not going to go too much into, more into that today because we're going to get to our main theme here, which is the Son of Man. Oh, look at this amazing artwork. This is the Son of Man vision that Daniel saw. Okay, funnily enough, in my Google image search, this was the best picture. It's from, you know, that looks like 15th century art. Wonderful. 600 years, right? We can't find anything better. Okay, can we please get some decent 21st century Christian art? Artists, come on, come on, render these visions. Okay, there's no reason why we should have all of these incredible virtual worlds that have all these fantasy stuff and nothing that actually depicts what's presented in Scripture in a compelling fashion. That's such a problem. We should have the greatest art because our art is actually real. It's actually true. Okay, that, that, okay, anyways. So if you're in Daniel chapter 7, go ahead to verse number 9. What we're doing is we're taking this center part of the book of Daniel, and we broke it down last week. The beginning of Daniel is the vision of the four beasts, and then Daniel sees a vision of a son of man right in the middle. And then the interpretation of the vision of the four beasts is given at the end. So we're going to take the middle section here of the book of Daniel. And it says this in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, now... You, you got to get this, you got to get a mental image here, okay? Get a mental image. This is the heavenly courtroom. Thrones are set up. Time out. Why are there thrones in heaven? That's weird, right? Don't we just think of that one throne, like his throne? Why are there thrones? And this was perplexing, especially to the ancient Israelites. They're like, huh? How does this make sense? Well, let's, let's see. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. What does that mean? I don't know. But in a lot of the depictions of the throne of God, there's wheels on it. In fact, a lot of times it seems to suggest that it's kind of like some type of mobile chariot, like Apollo, something like that. Okay, I don't want to get too weird. But a lot of times there's that type of sense of the description of the throne of God. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Let's pause right there. I want you to get a sense of this, okay? The biblical worldview is different from our secular humanistic worldview. In our secular humanistic worldview, it's all about humanity. It's all about us. But from the biblical worldview, the center of the universe is not Los Angeles. It's not New York, okay? It's the throne room of God. That's the center of the universe. It's the throne room of God. And earth is like a little speck over there, okay? From heaven's perspective, you've got to get this if you're going to understand the Bible correctly. There is a vast spiritual realm 
filled with many, many, many beings. A lot of times we don't understand that. We've got like 7 billion people on the earth, something like that, right? I would suggest that there are many, many times as many spiritual beings as there are humans. Quadrillions. Quintillions. I don't know. Is it, I don't know. What's after that? Hexagillions? I don't know. There's lots of spiritual beings. And I know that's weird for us because we're not used to thinking about a spiritual realm that's different. But can I suggest this? Most people on the earth believe in a spiritual realm. I once took a class at Berkeley. It was on medieval history. And if you know anything about medieval history, it's all written by monks. Okay, monks wrote all the medieval history. And monks had a very vibrant, robust view of the supernatural. So they would write about miracles all the time. And us 21st century post-enlightenment students at Berkeley would study these and we'd be like, oh yeah, and then, you know, this miracle happened, this miracle happened. We'd be like, well, what do you, what do you think really happened? Right? We assume that there wasn't actually a miracle, right? So what do you think actually happened here? And we talk about it in our little discussion sections, you know, 18, 19-year-old students, and we're like, Oh, yeah, this, and he's probably hallucinating. You know, maybe he took some, like, to drink too much beer, you know. like. And I remember I'm sitting there in my discussion section, and I'm thinking to myself, no, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. Most people in the world believe in the supernatural. Okay, most people in the world. And some of them, you know, we live in the, in the highly educated West, but, you know, all your grandparents believe in the supernatural, man. They all got, like, these ghost stories, right? Right, when this ghost came into their room and they prayed one time and something happened and the ancestor spirit did this. And man, if they're honest with yourself, all, you know, all of your grandparents will tell you that they actually do have a category for these things. And in fact, it's like that in the vast majority of the world. Most people on the earth believe in the supernatural. Okay, it is only a very relatively small portion of the earth that has become so educated that we think it's all ridiculous. I'm going to say this, that to understand the Bible, you must have a supernatural paradigm. You must have it, or else none of the Bible makes sense at all. But I say this all the time. As Christians, there's no reason why we should reject all the supernatural stuff that happens in the Bible. You can't have a faith. Let me put it to you like that. Okay? Paul says this, that if you don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. It's garbage. And there's a lot of people that try to reconcile historic Christianity with this 21st century post-enlightenment rationalism. And it's like, well, you know, Jesus, he didn't, you know, rise from the dead, but he, it's like he rose, it's like he spiritually rose from the dead. And I'm like, no! He literally rose from the dead. He literally did. Because all the apostles claimed that he did, and they were willing to be tortured and killed for that testimony. And their, their testimony was so compelling that they managed to convince thousands and thousands of Gentile Romans who had no reason to believe any of this stuff. And they transformed the world in a way that was completely unlike anything that had ever previously happened in the earth. Brother and sister, I think there's compelling evidence to believe this. But we've got to get a supernatural paradigm. So here we have the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, fire all around the throne, his wheels, and like there's thousands upon thousands attending him. This is a vast expanse. And I'm going to go skip down to verse 13. And it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, I want to suggest something to you. This is 4th century B.C. heresy. Okay, this is scandalous stuff. If you are a Jew living in the ancient world, why? Why is this so weird to a Jew? Well, it's hard for us to understand because, again, we are modern peoples. But you have to understand, in the ancient world, everyone knew there are many gods. Everyone knew this. This was standard knowledge in almost every culture. Everyone knew there's many different spiritual beings, and there's different gods, and different gods have different powers over different nations. Except there was one exception. 
these crazy people called Israelites, right? These crazy people, Israelites, they believed there was only one God. They created all the other gods, right? This one God who was the true God, and the, it was one. And that was the central belief. That was what it meant to be an Israelite, is that you believed that there was one God. So now what do you do with a prophet who's legitimate, who sees one like a son of man, seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and other people are worshiping him. Ah! Heresy! That's what you see. Son of man in the Old Testament was really just a designation to say a human. So when Paul's saying this, or excuse me, when Daniel's saying this, he's saying he sees one who's like a son of man. One that, this guy looks like a human. There's this weird guy that I'm seeing in my vision. He's given a throne next to God, and all the nations are bowing down and worshiping him. You have to understand, to a Jew, this, this is, uh, this is like, guys, I had a vision, right? In my vision, right, the prophet Muhammad rose from the dead, and he's God too, right? Now, what would you all do to me? I know Jason. Jason would, he'd come after me, right? Yeah, this is, this is heresy. This is heresy to them. They, this is something that is, that's impossible, that God would share his throne with a man, and the man is receiving worship. If you know some of the stories from the Old Testament, there's several stories about angels coming and visiting people, and then you know what sometimes happens? Sometimes the people get so afraid they start to worship the angel. And the angel goes, stop, cut it out, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm like you. I'm a created being. I'm not, you're not supposed to worship me. You worship God alone. But here we see in Daniel chapter 7 an extremely scandalous portion of scripture, and it's a prophecy, and I bet a lot of ancient Jews were really, really confused. In fact, fast forward, go to the next slide. Here's what we need to understand. Orthodox Jews today, like my homie Ben Shapiro, God bless him. Let him know Jesus as Messiah and Lord, okay? Dennis Prager, God bless him. Let him know Jesus as Messiah and Lord. I have great respect for many Orthodox Jews. But you need to understand, Orthodox Judaism today, it is the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees from the Old Testament. From the New Testament, excuse me. Let me give you, let me give you some understanding because many of us are not familiar um, with Judaism in general. Okay, so Orthodox Jews today argue that Jesus is not the Messiah. They believe that their prophets prophesied about a coming Messiah. But they look at Jesus and they go, that was not him. And as a Christian who grew up in an evangelical church, I think many of us, we might look at that and be like, how can they not believe that? Like how many prophecies look just like Jesus? Most notably, Isaiah 53, right? This, uh, this picture of a suffering servant, right, who was beaten for our transgressions. All of this, this, this Old Testament stuff that looks just like Jesus, right, born of a virgin. How, how, can you, how can you say that this is not Jesus? And yet they have a very robust theology, a very robust apologetic of why Jesus does not fulfill the messianic prophecies. And I think for us as Christians, we don't understand that. I want to give you some understanding of why that is the case, okay? So here's the story. Jesus comes around probably 3 B.C. or something like that, okay? And he lives for about 33 years, and then he is crucified. Now, he prophesies that destruction is going to come to Jerusalem, right? He said, tear down this temple, and I'll re rebuild it in three days. But he prophesied about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He prophesied that the Romans would come and destroy the city. That's exactly what happens 40 years later, okay? 40 years Okay, I don't want to get into that. Four years later, judgment comes upon Jerusalem in AD 70. This is like, if you have any understanding of the ancient world, you must understand the importance of AD 70. Okay, AD 70 is a big, big deal. The Jews launch a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Rome comes in, crushes the city, destroys the temple, scatters the Jewish people across the face of the earth. And what happens is the Pharisees get really worried now. Because Judaism requires the temple. In fact, you are forbidden 
from sacrificing, if you are a Jew, any place but the temple in Jerusalem. You have to. It's a sin to sacrifice anywhere else. The entire religion, their relationship with God, all revolves around the temple. So when the temple is destroyed, there is a serious dilemma to the Pharisees. They don't know what to do. So in about 90 AD, they gather together, and they write down the oral tradition. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus is constantly criticizing the oral tradition and how it differs from the Old, the Old Testament commands, the Mosaic Law, right? And that becomes what today is known as the Talmud, okay? The Talmud is the recorded oral tradition of the Pharisees. And what they do is they reformulate Judaism around the synagogue instead of the temple. So again, many of us are not familiar with these terms. Why do we meet here on Sundays every week? Because the Pharisees did. That's why. Okay? The Pharisees, they developed this system of meeting together for what we know as a church service. This was developed by the Pharisees when they were exiled to Babylon. Right? When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, leaders arose and said, we don't want to lose right, faithfulness to God. So they started to meet weekly. And they started to have service, and they would read the scriptures together. And the leaders would teach, and they became the Pharisees. Is this making sense? Okay. The Pharisees met together, and they, they formalized Judaism around the synagogue system, and they created a robust theology of why Jesus was not the Messiah. Okay. Brothers and sisters, I say this. you got to understand these things. I know it's a bit nerdy. But you can't understand the Bible unless you understand some of this stuff, okay? The role of Israel in God's plans is really important, okay? So pretend this is a lecture and you're going to get a grade on your final. Except it won't be by Pastor Dennis. It'll be by the big guy in the chair, all right? So let's, let's pay attention here. What happens in 8090 is they create a, a robust theology that Jesus does not fulfill the Messianic prophecies. How is that possible? Well, they do a couple things. Number one, they say that all the suffering servant prophecies in the Old Testament are not messianic. They say those were never intended to be messianic. In fact, they speak of Israel. Israel is the suffering servant. Israel has been beaten for your transgressions. And they have a whole idea of how Israel has suffered anti-Semitism and persecution throughout history. And they've suffered because to be a blessing to the nations. Does this make sense? Okay, so when Orthodox Jews today read Messianic prophecies, they cut out all the ones that are about the suffering servant, and they only look at the second stream of Messianic prophecy, which is about the king, the coming king, right? The one who will rule over the nations with a rod of iron and all of this type of stuff, okay? The second thing that they said is that the Messiah is not divine, why? Christianity was becoming very popular around this time throughout the Roman Empire. It was exploding in popularity. And so their religion was very threatened. And what they did was they said, look, God is not, or excuse me, the Messiah is not God. Messiah is a man. Why? Because that's their understanding of how to fulfill all of these prophecies. In fact, what they said, Christianity, this idea that Jesus is God, or that the Messiah is God, that's not Judaism. That's Greek paganism. That's like Hercules, right? Like God sleeps with the human woman, and then it begets like a demigod, half human, half God. That's just Greek mythology, and that's the constant criticism to today. If you talk to Orthodox rabbis today, they will tell you that Christianity is not Judaism. It's a totally new invention where all of these Greek people mixed Judaism with Greek mythology. And now we have this, you know, this, this, you know, version, this new version of polytheism, right? That's what Christians are. We're really polytheists. We believe in God the Father, but then there's God the Son and Who's that? That's a person, right, who became God or something like that. And then there's the Holy Spirit. We're really polytheists, but really that's, that's not what we believe. We've never believed that. And the answer to that is, eh, wrong. You did once believe that. In fact, I don't, do I have slides on this? Oh, sadness. No, it's not here. Oh, Go back a slide. I'm sorry. I put it on the, on the first one. I don't know why I did that. 
Daniel Boyerin, who is a professor at Berkeley, okay, he is one of the foremost experts in the world on Talmudic thinking, okay, on, on Judaism. He's an expert in Judaism, and he has started to write a series of books explaining how there was a stream of theology in ancient Judaism that believed that Messiah was divine. Why did they think that Messiah, Messiah might be divine? Because they read Daniel 7. Meaning that there was a stream of theology in ancient Judaism that supported by first century texts around the time that argue that Messiah is going to be divine. Brothers and sisters, this is important because if you ever get into academic theology, if you ever get into real studies about Judaism, about Christianity, you're going to hear again and again about the Greek pagan origins of Christianity. But no, this is not a pagan story. This is true Judaism. Christianity is not an invention of Greek philosophers, okay? It is an invention of God given through the Jewish people that he reveals right here in Daniel 7. We're reading the text right now. The prophecy was given hundreds of years before he came. And when we get to Daniel 9, you're going to see Daniel prophesied the exact time frame that Messiah would come. Which is why when Jesus is born, people are expecting Messiah to come. People are on the lookout, right? The woman, who's that woman who's in the temple praying? Anna, right? She's praying day and night to see the hope of Israel. Why? Because there was great messianic expectation in the first century because of these prophecies that we're reading right now. Okay, they were familiar with these prophecies. And you need to understand something. Jesus knew these prophecies as well. What's Jesus' favorite title for himself? Jesus is kind of weird. He doesn't usually say, I feel like going to the store, right? He doesn't say like, hey, you know, I'm hungry right now. No, he, he speaks to himself in the third person a lot of times. It's kind of weird, right? Let's look at one of those passages, okay? We're going to look at Mark chapter 2. It says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What's happening in this passage, okay? In this passage, the story, if you know the story, these guys, these four friends lower this dude, their friend, through the roof of the house. He's paralyzed, and Jesus, seeing the man's faith, says, your sins are forgiven. Now, under you got to put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew. What do you mean your sins are forgiven? Right? You can't do that. And that's why they, they say, who but God can forgive sins? And Jesus, he doesn't go into the, you know, oh, but I am God, right? No, he does it much more subtly than that. He calls himself the son of man. Now, in our understanding, we look at that and we're like, what's the big deal? But they knew what he meant, right? He, he was saying, you know that guy in Daniel 7? That's me. And to show you that I'm that guy, let me ask you, what's easier for me to tell him, hey, your sins are forgiven, or for me to heal him right now in front of you? And they're, they're probably like, what are you talking about, right? And he's like, pick up your mat and leave, right? <laughs> Boom, miraculously healed right there. And what are they going to say? <laughs> now they're confused. Now they're like, how the heck is this dude? Like, we can get it that you can do miracles. You have to understand, in that culture, they believed in the supernatural. They believed some people had powers to do these types of things, right? But for him to do that and then say your sins are forgiven, that's Jesus claiming a whole different level of authority. That's Jesus saying, I am the dude from Daniel 7 with the nations gathered around worshiping me at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, Jesus, 
he was laying it on thick. He was giving it to him in the face, right? This is who I am. He does it again. You want to see it again? I do. Mark chapter 2, a little bit later in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. you got to understand what car Jesus is playing right here. He's saying, I define the rules of the Sabbath. That's the card he's playing. Okay, he is saying, I am the God who looks like a man. When we get to, Gen- when we get to John chapter 10 in the 21 days of prayer, oh, I think I'm, I think I'm speaking on that day. Okay, oh, we'll get into it a little bit, right? Where Jesus claims, right, to be divine right in their faces. Understand this. Jesus was using this title, Son of Man, not as his designation saying, oh, I'm a human. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm the God that looks like a man, right? I'm the one from Daniel 7. This was an incredibly arrogant statement, especially why do you think the Pharisees were so offended at him? Because he's claiming to be the dude from Daniel 7, this guy, right? That's why there was such a deep offense. So, brothers and sisters, how do we understand these things? How do we understand these things? Well, something like this. Jesus is not just a nice teacher. He's not just the giver of the law. He's not just a nice friend to have. He's the one who is to be the king of all people for all time. Okay, this is an important message. There's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And I just say, in our culture especially, a lot of the teaching that is going around is that Jesus is the friend that you never had. Right? The one that you wish you could have forever. And I want to say, look, that is absolutely true in a sense. Okay? Jesus is the greatest of friends. But he is not cuddly. Okay? He is not the friend that understands and approves of everything that you do. Can I just be honest? He's kind of the opposite. Okay? He's kind of the friend who sees all that you do, the good and the bad, and he's got opinions on everything. Right? And I want to say, in our culture, it's hard to have a friend like that. We're not used to that. In our culture, we're like, Just let me be me. You be you. Me be me. But can I say this? You can't be Jesus' friend with that mentality. You can't be his friend. Because he calls us to be like him. That's the difference in this, brothers and sisters. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he is not just the son of man. right? Coming with the clouds of heaven, seated on high above all powers and authorities. He's also... The one who walked in our shoes, right? Who understands our weaknesses. Who knows why we struggle with the things that we struggle. He gives us mercy. I was sharing with the jam staff a couple days ago a principle. And I want to end with this principle, okay? Because I think this is, this is true. God is very merciful to those who are seriously pursuing him, okay? If we are seriously pursuing him in our lives... He gives us mercy again and again. Every time we stumble, every time we make a mistake, every time we turn away from him and then we regret it and we turn back, he gives us mercy again and again. But I need to make this clear. He does not give mercy to those who are not seriously trying to follow him. You do not get mercy. And this is the great distinction that we have in our culture, right? A lot of people want to say that Jesus is so merciful, he gives us mercy no matter what, no matter what bad things we've done. And I got to say, that is not true. That is not true. He is not just the one who gives us forgiveness, right? He's the one who will judge all people at the end of the age. And this misunderstanding of his mercy is what has gotten America in so much trouble because we have preached a message. Hear me. Every single person in America knows that Jesus loves him. Everyone knows that. You don't have to tell them, by the way, anymore, right? 
and you go out, hey, Jesus loves you. You know what they would say if they're honest? I know. Uh, I saw it on that billboard, you know, 50 times, okay? Everybody knows that Jesus loves you, okay? What they don't understand is what that means, okay? The meaning of that, the, the, the common understanding of what that means is that he loves you as you are and he approves of you, right, just the way that you are. And I have to say that is not what scripture intends to mean by that statement, okay? That's not what he means. No, he loves you, but he commands all men everywhere to repent and to put their faith in him. And by faith, it doesn't mean believe in a random set of facts about Jesus. Okay? That is not the gospel. The gospel is to swear allegiance to this king Having read his story and being convicted of the truth of it is swearing allegiance to this king. That is the biblical definition of faith. And for those that are faithful in that sense, that have sworn allegiance, and that are eagerly trying to please him and to follow his commands and obey his commission on the earth, they receive mercy after mercy after mercy because he understands that we are imperfect. He understands that we are all broken in many ways. But it's the orientation of the heart that determines whether we receive mercy from God or not. If we persist in sin and rebellion against him, he promises that he's faithful to his word. And what he means by that is that he will judge you for your unfaithfulness. I need to be clear about that. Because there's so much confusion on this issue. And I want to say this. Brothers and sisters. We must swear our allegiance to this king. Without condition. We can't say you're my king as long as you don't tell me to go to missions. As long as you let me date the person that I want to date. As long as I don't have to give, you know, 10% of my money, that's a lot, God, right? When we put conditions on it, I want to I lovingly say this. That is, he's not your king. He's your, he's your life coach, right? Life coach is handy to have, right? He gives you the good advice that you want, and when he tells you something you don't want to hear, you could say, well, nah. I want to say this lovingly. Jesus will not be your life coach. And I think what he does is he gives us time to repent. Okay, he gives us time. There's a window of opportunity where he will call us to submission to him as king. But if we deny it for long enough, he will remove that conviction and grace from our hearts. And he will let us go our own way. I want to say this lovingly in my heart today. Oh, that we would come to him on his terms. Oh, that we would come to him in surrender. And he promises that if we will surrender our lives to him, this is what baptism is. If we will surrender our lives to him and die to ourselves and be crucified with Christ, then he will raise us to new life and we will know him with intimacy. That we'll know him in a real way and that we will have a glorious eternal destiny and calling on our lives. Brothers and sisters, that's what this is about. As we get ready for Christmas, I want to say this is the reason for the season. Okay, this is the reason for the season. It's to declare that Jesus is the king that was prophesied to come into the world hundreds of years ago. Even as Daniel saw hundreds of years that a king would come and would establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And then it would destroy all the other kingdoms of man and it would fill the entire earth. That is exactly what has happened. We have 2,000 years of historic evidence to see that this kingdom is expanding throughout the earth. That it will continue. That every tribe and every tongue will know Jesus and they will give him their lives. A remnant from every nation. And I say, this is our job. This is our commission. To call the, the nations to the obedience of faith. To call them to submission. To call them to, uh, to recognize the rightful lordship of King Jesus. This is the gospel. None of this come to church on Sunday stuff and that's it. No, we call for submission to the king that was sent by the father because the day of judgment is coming. And I want to be found acceptable in his sight. Not by good works, not because I'm so much better than him, but because I have put my trust in the one that he has sent. Worship team, come on up.
This is the lesson of Daniel 7. The Jews 2,000 years ago were confronted with the living prophecy, the one who's prophesied, the one who would look like a son of man but be God himself. And he came amongst them, and he blew them away with his power. He blew them away with his cleverness. But so many found something that they could not submit to. So many found something in the person of Jesus that despite all the power, despite his incredible wisdom, despite these things, they were offended at him. They were offended at his claims to be the son of man. They were offended at his claims to have the authority to forgive sin. They were offended that he presumed to be able to define their rules and their regulations. But I want to say this, if we're going to follow Jesus, we must come on his terms. And he has said that the way is narrow. The gate is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. But wide is the path that leads to destruction, and there's many people on it. Brothers and sisters, we must come in submission to this gospel. Right now, can we bow our heads? I want to make a loving call and an opportunity today. If you understand that you must submit your life to Jesus as your king. Doesn't mean that you have to pledge to be perfect. None of us can pledge to be perfect. But if you want to submit your life to King Jesus and say, I want to give him my allegiance and my loyalty, not for a week, not for a month, but for the rest of my life, I am making a pledge of loyalty to be his. And his promise is that those that do this, he will give them eternal life. That he will glorify them. He will teach them his ways. He will provide for them as a king does for a good subject. He said that if you have never done this or you know that you've wandered from this covenant, you've wandered from this vow to the Lord, and you want to make the covenant again and say, God, I'm renewing my vows to you today. I want to give you an opportunity right now if you just raise your hand. Say, God, I'm pledging myself to you. Holy and completely, I'm yours. As the worship team plays, if you've raised your hand, I see you. I want to give you an opportunity. You just come before the Lord on your own, and you pledge him. You say, God, I give you my loyalty. I give you my faith. All my faith is in you. I'm putting, betting it all on you, God. Let's do that right now as we sing together. Let's stand together. Let's renew our pledges to King Jesus. And let's ask him for grace. So 